Oh, sorry. Is there a swearing on this? You can if you want. I'm not going to try to censor you because I know sometimes like it just comes out. So like right. it's not a big deal to me. All right, cool. All right. Um, and so uh, I'll just start the intro. Welcome back, everybody, to the Comic Books Matter podcast. I'm your host, Jesse, and we're here to talk about comics that impacted us. And for the first time in the podcast history, we have a guest, a very special guest. You might know him as the co-creator of Sex Criminals or The White Trees at Image, uh, the writer at Jughead at Archie, or his work at Marvel on Howard the Duck, Star-Lord, Peter Parker, The Spectacular Spider-Man, Marvel 2-in-1, Invader, Spider-Man A Life Story, and currently Daredevil and X-Men Fantastic Four but you might also know him as uh, the guy who gets into many battles of wits with one Ryan Stigman, Chip Zdarsky. Well, first of all, it's not really a battle of wits if one of the participants is witless. I, yeah, I mean, it's mostly the wits on your side. If we're yeah, talking. yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's you talking to kind of a baby, but like a baby that can I know. venom. Yeah, like sometimes I feel bad about it, like, like I'm belittling a child. But uh, sometimes the child gets a bit too big for their britches. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, and sometimes you just got to put the child in its place. Like, here's your bottle, and here's your pen. You get make it, something, you Make, get make it. something thank with you. Kate's. Thank you. Um, yeah, of course. Uh, Chip, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for uh, spending some time uh, with me talking about comic books. Oh, no, thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, uh, donating to the CLLDF. Yeah, it. of course. I mean, like, with anything with this, uh, it's kind of hard because, like, I see my local comic book store shut down right now, and they're trying to yeah. figure out ways to – um, raise money on their end and I just mm -hmm. any I've actually I can't buy new comics so I have all extra money now to help comic book stores anyway yeah yeah that's great yeah um, so uh, as always we win this show we bring comics to talk about how they impacted us changed our lives what we learned from them in a lot of ways like I talked about Calvin and Hobbes and how it kind of talked uh, taught me how to be empathetic with people okay yeah <laughs> and how uh how it taught me not to be so cynical as an adult because even the adults in calvin and Hobbes aren't very cynical they're just kind of like living the world with their son yeah yeah um so chip what would you bring for us today well nothing as lofty as that <laughs> these <laughs> comics didn't, didn't teach me anything <laughs> that's fine though <laughs> they're they're important to you and that's and i want to know why they're important that's all that really matters well, okay. Well, um, actually, I physically have a copy here in front of me of uh, uh, Marvel Secret Wars, uh, Marvel Superhero Secret Wars, issue number seven in a 12-issue limited series. Uh, and this is like a, a comic that came out in 1984. And it's the first comic that I recall buying. Like before this point, I, I vaguely recall some Spider-Man comics in the house um, that I enjoyed and like some big treasury editions of Superman stuff. But this is the one, this is the comic where I, I remember distinctly being in like a drugstore and seeing it 
and um, the cover was so striking and uh, uh, there were so many superheroes like on the cover. I was just like, what, what is happening? So I was probably like seven, eight, maybe. And before this, like, how were you introduced to superheroes? Like, were they just cartoons and then you found comics or was it the comics first? Uh, it's so hard to tell. Like, uh, like I, I was dressing as Spider-Man when I was like five, like for Halloween. And uh, there's photos of me with my birthday cake, which was uh, a Spider-Man themed cake. But my mother, God bless her, tried to make red icing. And it's just, it's a pink Spider-Man and it's adorable. Um, and, I mean, uh, Spider-Man can be for anybody, pink, uh, purple, any color Spider-Man yeah, costume. Exactly, anybody. exactly. It's like Green Lantern. There's Red Lantern, there's Pink Lantern. Um, That's what we need. We need Jeff Johns to give us the Spider-Man spectrum. <laughs> exactly, the spider spectrum. Uh, yeah, so I always recall it just being there. And then the, the, the 1960s cartoon in reruns, I should state in reruns because I'm not that old, um, uh, was huge for me when I was a kid. Like, I loved that show so much. And even the live action Spider-Man show for its brief appearance. Yeah. Um, that, the Hulk, Wonder Woman, like all those, the live action shows really uh, um, cemented it for me, I think. But but this this issue is the one that uh, that fully brought me into Marvel comics and comics in general. What I love about those old cartoons, because like I, even though I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm younger in, in, to you, um, when, uh, when I was growing up, that's what my parents played for me too, was the old 60s cartoons. And mm-hmm. when people kind of get kind of uh, stuck up about cartoons now and kind of like <laughs> what they are and what they look like. And the cartoons are there to like please kids and kids usually don't care what they look like or as long as something big happens, some kind of fighting happens. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you, you hit a certain age where you start to discern quality of animation, I think. Yeah. Because um, when I was a kid, too, um, in Canada, there was a, a company that imported um, uh, Japanese cartoons and redubbed them here. And so uh, around that time, I started to realize, oh, some cartoons look better than others. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is this was clearly a quality um, versus the uh, basic animation of the Spider-Man TV show. Which, you know, when you're five, you don't recognize that they're repeating animation throughout the yeah. whole thing. You're just like, hey, Spider-Man's swinging. And like, you, and usually there's like one or two jokes that you get, so you laugh and you're like, "Oh, okay, this is fun." It's like, like there's nothing. You you have no negative stigmas in your brain that make you feel like this isn't fun. Yeah, exactly. And I kind of exactly. wish, like, with comic books and stuff, I could go back there. So I'm like, everything's fun. Nothing's bad about this stuff. Yeah, and no, like sometimes, yeah, sometimes we hold on to that idea uh, so hard as adults that you know we we eventually transform the comics into adult comics right yeah Which, you know there's a lot of debate over um dr- driving kids away from the industry and you know that that is that is part of it like all of us that grew up with the comics are so fixated on them and it just reminds us of our childhood we're always trying to reach for that feeling again mm-hmm. um through creating the books but you, you, you never quite get there and so what you do is like you're like well what do i want to see now in the comics and so you end up with comics with uh maybe a bit more unsavory or adult themes and uh um, yeah yeah so it's entertaining for a portion of the audience but maybe not for the the kids that they were originally intended for you know 
Yeah, and like you write uh, for the most part, except maybe the image stuff, but for everything else is mostly just like the mainstream comics that kids would read. Um, I, and, I, and I just started reading your Daredevil run, which is really good. But like, yeah, I was going to say Daredevil is probably the one that is, that, that one's probably I mean, that adult. as adults. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, and even uh, Life Story is, I think, more adult too, because it dealt with such uh, sensitive topics within it too that would go over a lot of people's heads as a kid. Yeah, but what I, what I aim for with stuff like Spider-Man comics is that uh, a kid could still read it mm-hmm. and, and get a lot from it. And um, maybe the adults are getting a different uh, layer to it that the kids aren't. And, you know, I, I, I liken it to um, like The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Like when I was growing up, like kids loved The Simpsons. But there were so many jokes in there that just weren't for them at all yeah for sure but, but there was enough there that they um they were engaged with it so you, you kind of with a character like spider-man you want to kind of you want to provide a story with action and uh, uh impact and um you know keep some of it light enough that uh that, that kids could get into it but yeah also weave in themes for the older readers yeah, I think with your spectacular Spider-Man run, you really nailed that of that like duality of this is for kids, but this is also for adults, and both of them can get completely different messages out of this. But it's both extremely fun. Yeah, you don't want to you don't want to create something for kids and um, kind of patronize them and create products that you're not necessarily into yourself. Uh, at least maybe that's just me. Um, the uh, you know the comics I read as a kid still dealt with like life and death and there was violence and there was romance, um, but uh, but you kind of you kind of grow into it as well I think yeah. as, as as a reader like like I don't know like uh, Peter Parker's dating problems like when I'm seven or eight like I don't I don't have those problems <laughs> yeah but I can still like uh, part of it was feeling like you're reading something for grownups as mm-hmm. well, um, which made you feel kind of mature at, at a young age. Uh, I, I always love that feeling. Yeah, I, I remember there was a, there's an annual of a West Coast Avengers, I believe it's West Coast Avengers, where they have this uh, game with a Grandmaster where they're basically fighting all the dead Avengers. Yeah. And slowly every one of them starts dying because they have to stop a nuclear bomb and it, it, they can't always stop it. Yeah. And it ends up to just like two of them left alive. I'm like, cool, now fight again until all of you die. And, and I was reading that as a kid and I'm like, oh, cool action. The heroes battling villains, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, in the back of my mind, I'm like, they're dying in this. Like they're actually dying. And yeah. this is like, but it, but it was played off as uh, still a fun adventure for them. Because at the end they play baseball after they get yeah. out of it. It's like, okay, like the, there, it's still that thing for kids, but there's weird stakes wrapped inside of it. Yeah, yeah, and so it's funny because like Secret Wars, especially the, this particular issue, um, it's a war. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's the characters going to war. It's it's for anyone that doesn't know, it's uh, it's basically a toy line. Like Marvel needed a toy line, <laughs> like legitimately, and so I, I think it was like Hasbro or whatever the company was they're dealing with or Mattel. Yeah. Um... I don't remember off the top of my head, but I, I, yeah, that's basically what they yeah. need. They need some kind of big uh, money boost. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a money boost as much as it was they needed uh, something to um, to create the toy line out of and to tie into a toy line. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, and <laughs> reading reading. I think it was like the uh, the Marvel history book by Sean Howe. Um, they did like uh, testing with kids, and the the, the two words that uh, little boys loved the most was secrets and wars, and that's how it came. Secret wars, and 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 iconic to this day still. Yeah, yeah, but you know, it's that weird thing as an adult when you read stuff like that and you realize, oh shit, they were just like marketing towards me. This wasn't like some creative like thing that came to them and then we have to do this to entertain and you know yeah um but the uh but the but the end result was you know they threw in all the heroes and the villains and they're on this planet and they're battling each other and it was just so big and awesome and it changed things in all the titles and in 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 marvel's line um that was incredibly awesome but it was it was also was filled with like you know war stuff was death and hard decisions like in, in this particular issue like the She-Hulks and like the bad guys compound or whatever. And she gets the shit kicked out of her. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's brutal and it's horrible. And um, people, the, the heroes want to go and, and save her, but, um, but they can't. And Captain America says that, you know, they have to stay to uh, like fight Galactus or something like that. Like he's ha- he has to make a decision as like a commander. Um, of the other heroes and it, it's a it's a hard call and as a kid you're reading it you're just like wow like these are these are big adult decisions right yeah yeah it's 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 super awesome i don't i don't know if it holds up like i haven't given it a, a proper reread um i think like most comics of the day you know there's probably a lot of exposition and catching the reader up which kind of gets in the way of the narrative but uh but uh it still looks gorgeous yeah, like this, uh, the copy I have, like I don't have the comics that I had when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I gave them away uh, when I was in college, but uh, at Heroes Con a couple of years ago, I I tracked down this particular issue, back issue bins, and I got um, uh, Jim Shooter and Mike Zek to sign it. Oh wow! It was like I, I never do stuff like that at shows. Like, yeah, but at, at a show like I, I've made it a rule since I started doing shows that I do not leave shows with books <laughs> i mean like I'm, I'm there to sell smart. books i'm there to like you know uh I'm ter- now i'm there to like meet fans and um you know i'm, I'm working and so I, I don't i don't wander around i don't buy things really yeah for sure um, that's smart this is the first time i've probably done that since like 2003 and uh knowing that shooter and zach were there and I can, I can get them to sign it. And and it was that weird experience where you're, I was getting um, Shooter to sign it. And I, I really wanted to mention that I work for Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also like, oh, maybe he wouldn't take too kindly to that. And I didn't want to open it up so he could start trash talking the company while I'm standing there and nodding in agreement. Like, uh, I didn't want it to be awkward. So, you know, I said the usual, you know, big fan. This issue meant a lot to me. And, I mean, that's uh, amazing, though. cool about it. That, that that's a that's one of those things where like i i understand that rule of like you don't leave with the comics when you're because you're working but if you have that kind of opportunity you kind of have to just seize it because who knows when you'll ever get that again yeah yeah it felt it felt like a fun thing to do and um heroes con is the one in charlotte uh it's such a great show because it's it's just comics right it's, yeah uh, and there's, there's no offense to the read, read pop shows or the fan expo shows that, you know, have a lot of celebrities and 
um, really branching off from comics themselves. But uh, Heroes Con is about comics. It's about comic art, and uh, and uh, it's, it's the kind of show where it makes you feel like you want to walk around and check out back issues and original art. And um, going back to the issue though, um, when you read it as a kid, do you remember like like reading the conflicts within the issue and kind of, like understanding they were adult? Yeah but not fully like wrapping your head around exactly what the stakes were. And did you ever like, did you go back to that over and over again growing up at all thinking about like, you're right. Like when did you decide like you wanted to write like that? I don't know, a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I don't know, as a kid, everything seems like the end of the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, like I was pretty sure she Hulk was dead and it feels like she's a real person. And uh, you feel the anger of the the heroes at the end when they're kind of given the okay to go, um, to go take on the bad guys. Like it's it's everything feels larger when you're a kid. Um, yeah. Well, and, and it's very hard to recreate that now, um, because in comics, especially you know Marvel and DC books, like everyone's died and come back so many times, and um, it's hard to convey a sense of uh, permanence. In, uh, in a fictional universe that has like the world's longest unbroken narrative. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's a tricky thing. And so I'm always conscious of the fact that I can't quite recreate that feeling mm-hmm. from when I was a kid. So you just try to tell, like I, I very rarely use a major character's death. I, I, I've, never, I've never killed off a major character um, because I don't, I don't see a lot of value in it at this point. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'll create characters to kill them off. Um, though that tends to hit uh, harder now than killing major characters would have when I was a kid, um, because you you know kind of instinctually that um, if I create a character and then five issues later they die, like they're dead. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> who's, who's going to use Chip's character in another story? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's possible. Like people have obviously done it before. Um, like, uh, you know, Jerry Conway killed uh, Gwen Stacy, but he wasn't the one to bring her back, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and that kind of thing? Yeah, th- that that definitely make, makes sense. But with um, the thing about, with, with you making your characters too, because um, reading a lot of your Marvel work, whenever you, like, create a character itself, you, you make them feel real. Like, there's a lot of people who make characters in their stories, in their runs, and they kind of feel half-baked in a lot of ways. Uh, not calling me out because I can't think of specifics anyways, but like they feel like they're just there to fill a role. But yeah. I've, when I've read your work and you make a side character, you make them, f- like you flush them out. Like the detective, uh, I don't remember his name, sorry, but the detective. Oh yeah, Cole, Cole yeah. North. Yeah. He's like uh, the complete package. When I read him, I'm like, it feels like he's been in Daredevil for the last 20 years. Yeah, and when I kill him in issue 20. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, like, it's it's a nice opportunity with the Marvel books um, to be able to create new characters and and build them from the ground up because when you inherit characters, because those characters have gone through so much, um, there are so many variations on them. Yeah. Uh, and, And sometimes it's hard to land on which one uh, you want to play with and what you can add to that that hasn't been added before. 
and, and when it comes to back when you said like when you read it as a kid you felt like these characters were real i know you're not you're on the kind of the opposite side of the fence because you're writing them and you're drawing them do you still feel like they're real when you're writing them or do you like how do you approach writing do you make them real to your imagination or do you kind of know they're fake and you're like okay well like i know i could put them in these situations because they're fake they're different uh they're not they're not someone that has limits like this um yeah it's hard to say like if if the story i'm writing is a good one <laughs> um then it feels like they're real like usually i can tell that the story is working if it feels like they're real that's, that's like, cool. if, you, if you have if you have an emotional response to what you're putting down on the page um chances are high that you're you're doing your job well mm-hmm going through the motions not that i have but like i don't know like every once in a while you're working on an issue and it's not clicking yeah um and it's it's unfortunate because you got deadlines and you have to get the product out um so yeah there's 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 a sense of there's a sense where it kind of clicks over into real um um if 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 you're doing your job correctly if that makes sense yeah no it makes total sense like (coughs) i do uh I do fiction writing in my spare time. So like when stories work, it's when the ones that like I feel the most connected and when they don't like I lose, it's either I'm losing interest in the idea or the idea wasn't really there to begin with. And so I a hundred percent get what you're saying with that. Yeah. And sometimes it's just inertia. Like if you work on something too long, um, uh, you, you just want to quit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a thing where I think it was Stephen King. He said like, if he takes more than like six weeks to finish a first draft, he gives up yeah because, like, Stephen King did you take that from uh, on writing his book I think, on I think it was on, and on writing it might have been that or yeah. another interview but it was just like and then but then after he finishes it he puts it in a drawer for like another two months and doesn't think about it yeah so he can come back to it fresh and feel more interested in it it's just but I, that's, I, a, that's, that's a great book like in, in terms of like describing um what it takes to be a, a writer yeah uh, it's the one I suggest to people whenever they ask me, you know, should I read anything? Yeah, I loan it out whenever I can. It's really good. Yeah, yeah it's, it's 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 really solid. And and putting a thing away and, and coming back to it is 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 a really um, smart suggestion. Uh, if I have the time, I'll, I I do that. It's harder in comics because mm-hmm. there's a supply chain. Like an artist needs to start drawing this. <laughs> you know, I, I don't have the liberty to dr- write a thing, put it away, come back to it, play with it again on the second draft. Like my second draft is basically um, the second I finish writing the first draft. Yeah. I go back to the beginning and I read through it right away that, and then change things. That's the second draft. And the third draft is when the editor gets the notes back to me. And it all happens qu- so quickly. It's, uh, yeah, it's hard to actually get a bit of distance from it with uh with your independence of an image you kind of get to play as the artist and as the writer is mm-hmm. um i know with you matt on sex criminals like matt took uh was doing the movie like the tv stuff and the movie stuff mm-hmm. so it took a while to get this lo- this last art kind of going in a lot of ways i don't know if it was i was slow on it too yeah but yeah. with uh but with white trees um it like did did there was there deadlines that you you forced on yourself or did you have other deadlines that kind of got imposed by others well that was interesting because um you know i worked with chris Anka and yeah. matt wilson on star lord mm-hmm. and to this day is kind of the they're like the platonic ideal of an art team like 
Chris was so professional and, and fast and um, his storytelling is so solid mm-hmm. that like every day I would just get a new page and I would just feel like this is amazing. It's amazing. Like it, it's rare that I have no notes on a, on a, a book when the art comes in, but, but Chris is, and Matt especially are, um, are, are two of the best. And so I always told him that I would work with him whenever he was free. And one day he contacted me and he was like, Hey, I mean, I got to start a new project, but it won't be for three or four months. Um, which means I have time for X number of pages. Like he knew exactly the number of pages that he had time for. Wow. Like that, <laughs> that's I was like, Oh, that's organized. He, he knows himself. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a pro. And, um, and so he was like, can you get me a script for a new thing by, uh, it was like Christmas. And it was a tight deadline because it was like maybe two weeks to write. What was it? That first one, like 60 plus pages. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took a lot of juggling because I had a bunch of other projects, but, uh, but it was really liberating to write it all as one go. Cause I envisioned it as the, the, the um, two issues, 30 pages each, but like yeah. kind of one story. And so I wrote it as one story and, it's so rare working in the Marvel DC system to be able to sit down with a chunk of, of pages uh, available to you that isn't 20 <laughs> or yeah, 30. Sure. Like, so, um, so it, it was super liberating and um, uh, I, I really enjoyed that process and, uh, and Chris and, and Matt just hit it out of the park. Like their, their work is so gorgeous. And I, I remember I, when I got White Trees, uh, one it took me forever to track down the first issue because it just blew up. But uh, the, that that being a two issue like solid story front to back with just the, Chris's amazing art and Matt's just amazing colors on it because like they both are just like masterclass at what they do. Yeah. But the, your narrative that you were able to unravel and then tie up within sixty pages and give that world such like like just filled it out with so many different characters and places and lore that you barely scratch the surface on, but enough to hook anybody that reads like the first five pages. Yeah. yeah. It was was interesting to, to tackle that. Um, I'm not a fantasy guy. Yeah. I'm not a world building guy. So I I wanted just, just enough details of a history to, um, to get, give context for what's going on. But really, I mean, the majority of the work is done by Chris and Matt because it's the designs of the world to kind of give the illusion of more to it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, and and uh, working on the 20 the page monthlies for Marvel kind of trains you to um, do more with less, mm-hmm. to get more information um, as naturally as possible in uh, a short span of time. So it, it, it makes it makes it makes me more comfortable um, creating a whole a whole new thing within sixty pages, which seems luxurious, really. Yeah. Um. To to move on to the other comic you brought with you for this, uh, which one did you bring oh, yeah. for that one? Okay, so I brought uh, Fantastic Four issue three fifty two, and I'm actually opening the bag right now. You can hear it popping about. Um, now this is a book uh, that came out in 91 so I was in high school I was probably grade 9, grade 10 <clears throat> and 
uh, when I was a kid, I, I grew up on the, the John Byrne Fantastic Four. I mm. loved it. Um, after he left, I was a little heartbroken and uh, I, I tried to follow it for, you know, maybe six months and then, and then just kind of gave up. It just didn't have the same feel. But then uh, Walt Simonson took over Fantastic Four, writing and drawing it. Um, and I was a fan of his on his Thor run. And so I was like, oh, you know, at that point, I was feeling almost a little too old for it. But uh, but I remember picking up the first issue because I had such a fondness for uh, Simonson. Simonson. Yeah. And uh, and it blew me away. It, it's it was such a fun first issue, uh, uh, and and just big and grand and very Fantastic Four <clears throat> with guest stars and giant cosmic issues and um, and I was hooked. And it, it's a relatively short run on the title. And I, I don't know how much kind of play it got at the time, uh, but it, it, it's my favorite FF run. And, and so this particular issue, uh, I, I think about it <laughs> probably once every couple of weeks because it, it does stuff with uh, narrative and time that I haven't seen done uh, with, with any other comic. And uh, I'll, I'll explain a bit of it. So basically in the preceding issue, you know, it's kind of a classic FF setup where, you know, Fantastic Four and Latveria and, um, you know, Doom, Doom is back and he's better than ever. And Simonson drew an awesome new costume for him. Uh, so he has them all trapped, but uh, Reed Richards is free and for somehow. And on the cover, you see kind of him coming at you in a big explosion. Mm -hmm. But, um, but it, it's him fighting Dr. Doom throughout time. Not like dinosaurs or anything like that. It's, the, it's the, throughout minutes. It's like going back and forth in like micro jumps. So the way the issue is structured is, as soon as they start doing that, uh, on the left-hand side of each page, there's a timestamp telling you what the actual time is. So chronologically, it, it follows, you know, standard time constructs. On the right side, it's them in the time stream mm -hmm. where uh, when, um, when there's a time code, it means they've jumped and you have to go to that page to see where they jumped to. So, so it's, 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 using, it's using a physical comic book page and splitting it up in such a way that you can read the issue through twice to see uh, to see the story and how it interacts uh, in time. But the best part of the whole thing is, at one point, Doom shoots this blast at uh, Mr. Fantastic, and uh, Mr. Fantastic uh, blips it, like sends the blast through time. And that's when you realize that the cover of the issue, the explosion is is uh, future read freeing past read. So the, oh, cover wow. becomes, the cover becomes part of the narrative, which is it's just, it's, yeah. At the time, I remember the first go through reading, I was like confused. I was like, what? what's going on? I don't, I don't get this. And then when you go through it again, you're like, oh shit, that is smart and uh, so Fantastic Four-ish and fun. And also he does some really nice effects with the, the, the time jumping too, like, he uses a lot of zip tone, letter set um, to make uh, all those sections feel different. 
So it's, it's gorgeous art, it's smart storytelling, and it's a big Fantastic Four story that kind of resets the doom as a, a big bad. Because it kind of became a joke for a while. And so part of Simonson Run was, um, you know, Doom's a fighting Doom bots trying to regain his throne. And then all of a sudden this mysterious figure shows up and it's like this Doom in a futuristic, you know, Doom armor, mm-hmm. like glowing red eyes. And he's like, oh, I've been away too long. And he reveals that, <laughs> that Doom's a Doom bot that... Um, He's been gone for years, like all these <laughs> FF adventures where they fought Doom, where it's kind of pitiful. Um, they weren't the real Doom. And, and it plants uh, an idea in the reader's head that, shit, maybe he hasn't been Doom this whole time. Maybe like the first two appearances were the only legit appearances, um, which is kind of a, a as, as a writer now, I really appreciate that kind of mild retcon like that that's a masterful retcon if i've ever heard one yeah yeah because it's like it doesn't invalidate all the stories but it puts into doubt in the reader's mind which ones were doom because he kind of mentions like i've come back to earth once in a while and and, and it gives the reader their opportunity to choose what's their doom Mm -hmm. which i think which i think is really like important in a lot of ways when it comes to reading so many comic books is kind of like letting the readers choose what's "Quote unquote continuity for them in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Instead of sticking to such a staunch continuity, which kind of gets messy when you get to the longer characters. Yeah, and, and it's funny, like you know everything I know of uh, Walt Simonson and uh, having interacted with him, um, he's like the nicest man in comics. Like he's he just is. Like everyone will agree on. I've that. heard nothing but good things about him. I know he's he's amazing. Um, so it's a very Walt Simonson move because he doesn't want the previous writers to feel like he's slagged them. Mm -hmm. But also he recognizes that doom was not the threat that he should be Mm -hmm. up to that point. Um, So it's, it's a really, it was a really smart move. So, so I I think about that issue a lot whenever I'm writing a standard comic issue and I'm just like, you know, Simonson did it all better in 1991, <laughs> you know? So everybody should have retired then and we could have been happy with what we had. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, do you think with uh, talking about Simonson kind of get, giving Doom kind of his teeth back with this issue, do you think that's where we get come to the conclusion now that Doom's probably the best villain in the Marvel Universe with like how, just how smart he is and you kind of root for him at times because he, he's one of those villains that, once he gets going, eventually he starts making sense. Either he's just convinced you or you're tired of hearing him talk. Yeah, I, I, I can't say for certain if he's the best villain. He's the most fun to write. Yeah, that, that's... You that's know, I, I think a lot of writers, like we have our list and our lists tend to be the same characters. Like Doom is fun to write. Namor is fun to write. Ben Grimm is fun to write. Emma Frost is fun to write. Like they yeah. all have very distinct voices most of them are dickish um uh but it's it they're a ton of fun to to write it's all those characters that let you write your your inner monologue that you can't say to people yeah yeah uh i I think about like a lot of villains the the uh they start off really strong and you're just like oh yeah this is the best new villain but then if they become popular then they get overdone and watered Mm -hmm. down or you know, made into too much of a hero or something. Yeah, they stopped being villains in a lot of ways. I think about that with uh, Jason Todd and Harley in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, and then they, and then then they start to kind of go back and forth, and uh, ends up just kind of upsetting people because they're mm-hmm. like, "Oh, I prefer him as a hero. I prefer him as a villain." Um, and so there is the kind of watering down that happens with all of them. And, and again, as I pointed out earlier, it happened to Doom mm-hmm. for sure, and you know it, it continues to happen to the character uh, depending on appearances. Um, yeah, the the characters are all very malleable, but. Um, the downside to that is yeah they are so you kind of you kind of move away from what the the core should be and what marvel needs the character to be because marvel doesn't have a lot of they have a lot of great villains but um but almost always the villains kind of stop being villains and it, it, it makes for really fun and interesting stories but then you just lost another villain (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think honestly, in, in even in DC too, like they're the bigger the villain is, at some point they stop being a villain. Except with like maybe the cases of the really big bads like Joker, Darkseid, Thanos, in a lot of ways. Um, Mar- Marvel's a lot worse with that, I think. Yeah, like but I, th- got, I think about like Lex. all the top all the top ones, like Doctor Octopus was Spider Man. Yeah, and he was a good Spider Man in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. Magneto obviously, you know, goes back and forth. Doom was infamous Iron Man. Um, Juggernaut, like there's there's not a lot of villains. Sandman, like he's the classic one that goes back yeah, and forth. Norman Venom, Ven- Venom. Yeah, I mean. Norman Osborn. I was thinking, um, what's it? Uh, see, not, not Secret Invasion, but after that, where um, he becomes like he—he's basically like I'm making my own Avengers. Yeah, but they were there. I mean, his plans are still evil. Yeah, true. Like, like whereas Sandman, he always has like an actual, you know, change of heart, and Venom is like the the main one. Like Eddie Brock, stopped being a villain. You know, he's super cool now, but you, you sometimes you miss having the pool of villains to to play with yeah but but as an adult you know to write an interesting story you need to have the reader empathize with the villain and sometimes that pushes them over into almost a heroic uh category yeah and i I think about with the villains that get their own like solo series like doom has right now and how venom technically has even though venom's more of a hero than a villain in that weird gray area you have it's hard to sell a straight villain book Mm-hmm. And it takes like a really extremely, I think, talented writer and like creative team to nail a best-selling villain book where the villain through the whole book stays a villain. The the current Doctor Doom monthly, it's real good. It's fantastic. It's probably the best book Marvel's putting out. Uh, I, I, was, I was thinking about that scene where you said that Doctor Doom is really fun to write. Uh, the scene between him and um, Kronos recently. Oh, when yeah, they're yeah. like when they're like arguing about like who's better <laughs> in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and at the end they just kind of they, they maniacal laugh together because they're just having fun as villains yeah yeah i it's funny like i read the pdfs as they come in mm-hmm. like um uh, there's like a list of marvel creators that just to kind of keep up with what's going on so i can't i don't even know if like the issues i read have come out <laughs> but there's like there's 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 an issue of doom recently that's mostly just him talking to his subordinates and uh and it's so glorious. It's so well done. And it makes you love him and hate him at the same time. Like uh, the writer was it Christopher Cantwell. Like he, mm-hmm. he does such a great job at, at balancing that out. Like, cause you're right. It is hard to have a villain as the, uh, as the lead of a, of a series. Cause uh, yeah, eventually they stop being a villain, but he always, he always, 
He's a great writer because he always serves to remind you at some point, oh, shit, no, this is Dr. Doom we're talking about, which is great. Some uh, some other great villain-led titles, I think of Calm Bun's uh, two villain titles that I think about the most are like Sinestro and uh, Magneto. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah like in those ones, they make the Sinestro and Magneto sympathetic in a lot of ways, but through the whole book, they're doing some real nasty stuff. And, yeah, yeah. and you're like, and you're on that weird thing where you're like, I root for you. But boy, you're still in the wrong in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, sure. I, and I guess horror, like anybody that writes horror really well, kind of can get into that really fun negative zone. And then mm-hmm. when they transfer it to a villain, like it just kind of fits well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's probably why. But, but it, it's it's funny. I was just thinking. I was thinking a lot about this this week because um, I was I was offered a, a title. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I started doing research and like heroes and villains and, you know, I, I found this one villain like, oh yeah, like I'm reading an old issue of a book and I hit this villain. I'm like, oh, I forgot about this guy. He's so cool and he's so great and he's so mysterious and evil. And then I'm like, all right, I wonder what, what he's been up to since the, since this arc. And then you read the Wikipedia page with the character. He's like, oh, fuck. He's just <laughs> Like, he's just been through so much. And he's up and down. He's good and he's bad. And he's destroyed. And he's brought back. And he's weak now. And like, like, like it's, yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to know what to ignore sometimes in terms of continuity with a villain to, like, I, I, I had difficulty with that. Like, I wrote a Spider-Man issue with Sandman. And then when you, when you, research enough about the character just like he's been through everything these characters have been through so much every supporting character in spider-man has been a villain has been dead has come back like supporting characters not just villains or heroes like Mm -hmm. talking like your betty brands and your ned Leeds and your flash thompson's yeah like like, seriously especially with spider-man geez yeah it's like it's a lot and it's hard to like it's hard to present them with a thing where they won't just go what so what i've I've seen everything like to actually elicit an emotional response in some of these characters um, when they've been around for so long and they've been through so much, like you have to kind of, you have to have their emotions ignore their history a little bit um, to, to be faced with like someone dying and have them like be sad and angry about the death, even though they themselves have been killed and brought back five times. Like you really, you, you have to kind of shut off a bit of continuity in your head to, to write some of the characters. Uh, I want to get back to the Simonson issue, but before that, we're talking about villains and heroes and kind of like the the way they're written. With Invaders, like you had a very interesting challenge, but I guess with Namor, it's not super hard because of how he's been written a lot. But making Namor a villain, but also at the same time, he really is a hero think, doing what he thinks is best, but he's just being, he's being manipulated and he has a lot of trauma that hasn't been dealt with. And like, yeah, that was, how'd you, how'd you come up, one, how'd you come up with that in the first place? But two, like, how did you do that so delicately? Cause like, I feel like you nailed it personally, but I, I'm, I'm just a fan. So who knows? No, thanks. Yeah. Um, it was definitely a challenge because with Namor, I want to explore the concept of PTSD without um, without directly invoking it because it's a real thing and people go through it, uh, especially um, uh, in wartime. And you don't want to make it feel smaller by 
giving it to a comic book character and then they get over it by the end and move on, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, to do it properly, you kind of have to leave into the Marvel universe of it all and the comic book of it all and kind of mask it. So it becomes a bit of a metaphor. Yeah. Like having it. So it was like Xavier that kind of fucked with his brain and, um, and, uh, and, and that, that, that created this extra character in his head, like, you know, a very Marvel universe kind of solution to this issue. Um, and that's, what's kind of, uh, creating these, these feelings and him lashing out and, um, and, and having these mental difficulties. Um, it, 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 it felt like the way to go with it. Yeah. Like I knew, I knew going into the series, what Jason Aaron was doing with him in Avengers, which was, you know, like we just discussed, like bringing him back to being a bad guy again. Yeah. A bad guy with a point of view, which is the best kind of bad guy. Yeah. Um, you know, cause you are always questioning whether or not his decisions are the right ones or not. Um, and so I wanted to be able to continue that, create a, create kind of a reason for him and his kind of flip flopping. Um, because John Byrne did it back in the day, like in the old Namor series that he wrote and drew, he had it. So Namor, um, discovered that it was like an oxygen imbalance <laughs> i was making him like turn villain i love old essentially. science i know and it's like when i first read i'm like oh, this is a great solution but then i'm like well if he's got the solution then why does this keep happening <laughs> yeah like yeah. like as soon as you come up with a solution that solidifies him that's like okay now he's going to be consistent then you can't really do that with a character like namor so um so I wanted to create the, the added wrinkle of this character within his head mm-hmm. uh, that was kind of pushing his darker impulses. Um, and so I wanted to make sure I left it at the end of Invaders where um, he's his own man again, but he also recognizes that at his core, he's done these bad things. And um, at his core, he believes these things as well. So it, it allows the other writers after me to um, take what they want from this, you know? Like you yeah. kind of want to give them the, that, that almost as a gift. Like, hey, if you want to play him, you know, as full on villain, you can. If you want to play him as hero, you can. Um, I've got an explanation for why he's been the way he is, but now he's a new thing that can be either or both. Yeah, and, and what's great with, like when you said you did with Namor and kind of like the, it's kind of like the flip side of what Walt Simonson did with, doom it's like you're not doing your this is my stance and if you're gonna if you want to write this character you're gonna have to wipe my stance away yeah. uh and th- i know there's some creators who like when they write characters like i want my thing to be as definitive as possible so you're, you're pushing the next writer's hand in a lot of ways yeah and like that also doesn't become as fun because then you handcuff writers in ways that maybe they weren't ready to like tackle mm-hmm. yeah for sure um, going back to the now the Simonson issue itself, you say you think about it once a week. Back then, when you read it in high school, how did it influence you into like forward into college and into now to writing? Like, did it start then? Were you thinking about it weekly, or did you did it slowly kind of creep up on you like that? It's more of a recent thing um, since I started writing them professionally. Like, I didn't have designs on being a comic book writer. Um, I enjoyed writing them and I would draw kind of my own kind of fan 
books when I was in high school. By fan books, I mean like a fan page or two. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> then I get bored and move on. Yeah. Um, I, when I when I left high school, I went to school for illustration. and became an editorial illustrator. I did a lot of work in newspapers and magazines. And I did comics on the side. But um, at that point, I, I, I really stopped thinking about superhero comics. Um, except that I kind of followed them online, like fantasy football. Yeah. Okay. Like I, like I knew everything that was happening in them. I knew all the creators, who they were, what the titles were, what the storylines were, but I wasn't necessarily buying or reading them um, unless friends of mine were working on them. So I, I, I really hadn't considered a career in writing comics until basically I started writing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like a natural progression because um, I wrote my own stuff, which was fun and quirky. And then um, my friend Matt uh, wanted to do a book and I wanted to do a book and we did Sex Criminals together um, as a lark. But when that took off, it, it drew some attention from Marvel and DC, more specifically Marvel. And uh, an editor there who had read one of my older comics years before recognized that I could write somewhat and so offered me like a small gig and I did the small gig and then it became a bigger gig and became another gig. And it was a very natural progression um, that wasn't planned in the least. So w- once I started to really start writing Marvel comics, I, I really started thinking about them again. <laughs> yeah. Like up until that point, I was buying, like I said, friends books and a couple of titles that really jumped out at me. But, uh, but when it became my kind of surprise career, um, I got a lot more invested and I started to revisit older books that, uh, that affected me and kind of reverse engineer them. Like, wow, how did this work? Why did this, why did this affect me so much? And, you know, the, and the Simonson run was, was one of them. And, um, it has a, it had a relentless pace to it and had giant ideas, um, but also really great character moments and, uh, and stellar art and design. And, and so, and this issue is just like, it just stands on its own as such a well-executed, brilliant idea. So, yeah, so I really didn't think about this issue for like a decade or two. Uh, and then it became the kind of book that I, I thought about a lot in more recent years. That I think that's one of the greatest things about comic books, because especially now doing this show a lot, I think about the stuff I read as a kid because I started reading when I was super young and um, with comics, there's such an art form that's more passively enjoyed than actively enjoyed in a way where you kind of read them and you forget about them and movies kind of stick with you longer, unless it's like a huge book. Um, but then when you start working on your own creative projects or working in the same field as comics in a lot of ways, then they start becoming active in the back of your brain and you remember the stuff you read as a kid and I think mm-hmm. kind of just start eat at you in that way. Yeah. And it's it's super wild because I was thinking about the first book I ever bought, uh, which I was planning on going in deeper talk later about, but it was like an Ultimate Spider-Man number 27, I think it was. Okay. And I, when, I, when I read that as a kid, I was like, I don't know what's happening. Spider-Man's just running through his school, trying to stop Rhino. And at the end, he doesn't stop and Iron Man stops. Him. Okay, cool. That was fun. But now as I'm writing or doing this, thinking about the books I read, I'm like, oh, that whole book was about how Peter... <laughs> fails a lot <laughs> yeah and can't get his life together to do one thing <laughs> the one thing he needs to do <laughs> which is be a hero and at the end someone has to pick up the slack for him because he can't fix his own life to do it yeah yeah and for sure 
And like, I didn't even, it didn't even cross my mind that that was about that until like two weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. So, so quick question. Where yeah. did you buy that comic? Um, I bought, there was a local store um, where I live uh, in like uh, more in uh, Northern California. There was a local store that was called all the good stuff and more. That's what was the name of the comic shop. And my dad took me there one day. He's like, Hey, let's buy a comic. I know you like them. Let's buy them. Cause he used to just get them at like uh, garage sales or, uh, or yeah. like, yeah, use, uh, use stores, like at thrift stores, but not a new one. So I, I booked up the shop. I'm like, ah, that's Spider-Man. And I'm going to buy that Spider-Man. Cause it, it was just him on the cover on like a flagpole. So I had no idea what else was in there. Yeah. Yeah. Those, the, the, the ultimate covers, it was an interesting experiment because each cover was just like kind of an airbrushy looking mm-hmm. It looked hero really hero pose it was very generic but you know it looked great because you know it's still bagley uh drawing it um but yeah it didn't really tell you anything about the story inside which is which was a really interesting idea at that point they kind of put the whole story idea in like the they have like subtitles for every issue on the comic itself which i thought is a super interesting idea for uh the way they do covers because like comics will say like like a kind of like a catchphrase but like the ultimate books will have like, <laughs> like it'll say Mystic Knights and you're all, you know, Spider-Man's actually messing with the Mystic Knights in this book. That's actually yeah. what the plot is. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it's just like a hot phrase to like say like Batman versus everybody, but he fights one person, yeah. <laughs> but it's, but it's the way to get people in it. Yeah. Um, well, I always yeah. think of the Silver Age books where they came up with the cover first. Oh, really? Yeah, like basically, like the editor would be like, I, I actually don't know if it was the editor or the artist who would do it, but basically, like, they'd create a cover where it's just like, oh, it's Batman, but Superman's been turned into an ape, and Batman's <laughs> like, I need to, I need to save Superman from being an ape, but if I do, the Flash drowns. Like it's just like a <laughs> like a ludicrous premise, and then yeah. they have to like write the comic based on the cover. Uh, now that I think now that you explain that, I think about I have some of those books and I have gone back and read reread them because like I've been going through my my collection recently when I've had all this free time, mm-hmm. and uh, and a lot of times they have to make those stories like make sense, but they just yeah. they can't click it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like an improv game or something. It's 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 pretty fascinating. Yeah, and um, I can't remember who it was on a word balloon episode recently, but I can't remember who it was. But they talk about how people talk about the old creators as they were like legends and they were doing this amazing work, but they were really working for it. They're working for a paycheck mm-hmm. and they yeah. weren't, and, that, and they, they might've been thinking about how epic this was uh, as they were writing it. But what the main focus was get this done so mm-hmm. I can get paid so yeah. I can feed my family. And so yeah, that's why some of those books just exist like that. Yeah. And there's, there's this other element to it. Like, because they were kind of, they were the first people making these mm-hmm. stories like they weren't fans. Yeah, exactly. They didn't. They didn't grow up reading, you know, The Flash. You know, um, so they're, they're, they they knew very much so that they were just creating these books for kids. And, you know, you put your work into it, and you want it to look good, but you also recognize, yeah, it's the paycheck, and you know, getting the book done on time, and hopefully getting a, another gig. Yeah, um, and it's super fascinating to like when you put that contextualized like that, cause I always grew up thinking of uh, like Jack Kirby, Stanley, all that as just as the heroes. And they're like, they knew what they were doing, <laughs> but they were really just like, I have an idea. Let's get it on paper and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully, I mean, hopefully we get paid. 
and they pushed the medium it's not like there wasn't artistry there like yeah obviously with a guy like kirby like he was trying radically different and new things in his career um but yeah ultimately you got to get paid like mm -hmm. I, I i forget you know i don't know if it's a real story or not but um there's a story about like in the marvel office like it was like john buscema and john ramita and they're like they were working and it was like on a deadline and john buscema saw like john ramita like erasing something and buscema just like grabbed his eraser and threw it away and he's like you're paid to draw not a race yeah that that makes and, and, and his, his 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 reasoning was like like your john ramita like your bad drawing is better than anyone's best drawing yes yeah, like so no one's no one's going to be able to tell that you know this isn't you know up to your level of perfection and like deadlines are crazy now because I, I hear you guys talk about it all the time here in interviews but i i when i read and hear some of the old stories deadlines were insane back then mm -hmm. Like but there, there was there was a looser way of working as well. Yeah, you know the uh, what's kind of demanded of a of a comic now is definitely more than mm -hmm. what was demanded at the, at the time. Um, you look at Kirby pencils; they're very quick. Mm -hmm. Like you can see the speed and the looseness in them because you know he had to do like five books a month. You know they worked incredibly hard. I'm not saying like oh we have it so tough. Yeah, but and, uh, and but there was there was more of an assembly line happening at that point. Um, because they needed to get the marquee names out there. Yeah. Yeah, because as I said, at the same time, like they all worked in the same office together. Like you, when you draw something that has to be inked by someone else, you're, you're going to have to forward it to that person. Hopefully they get it the first time because who knows with emails and scanning and all that stuff because sometimes yeah. things just don't go through. And like like working together in an office, you can't have that factory like setting where Jack right, draws it, hands it over, they ink it, color it, gone. Yeah, I don't know how many of them worked in the office together at the same time. I think there'd be like, there'd be instances where they would like set up and work in the office. But I think for the most part, Stanley created the illusion that it was like everyone worked in the bullpen, but mm. really just like drive into New York once a week and deliver your pages and talk to Stan. Yeah, that um, makes a lot of sense. You know, Romita worked in house um, at some point, obviously, because he was became the art director and he had... Uh, um, an art team called the Ramitas Raiders that would um, do the quick jobs and do the fixes on pages. I, I, I think it was in that Marvel history book because I, I read it too. Uh, there's a there's a scene where at the end of like Ditko's run on Spider Man where he was just mad and he would just drop off pages and walk out. Yeah, yeah, fair. <laughs> yeah, so like yeah, that's that's for sure. Like especially the the bigger guys, they probably just did it from their house all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't want to keep you for too much longer, but I do have some no, questions. Um, yeah. So I have some Facebook questions first. Uh, Annie would like to know when we might get more Black Sand Tales. She thought White Trains was phenomenal and she's ready for more. Um, it's in the works. Um, there are a few uh, wrinkles. One is that Chris Anka is working on Spider-Verse 2. That's which is, so cool though. It's super cool. Um, and uh, and he's, I, I can say right now, I've, I've definitely written more and Chris has drawn more um but we're we're still a ways out from an actual like official announcement on what it is exactly is it is it gonna i don't know if you can say this exactly but is it gonna be another like two issues of tail or are you planning on doing a longer the story the time? story is longer um and is broken up in a different way gotcha okay uh, but but it it's, it continues the tale it, it, it takes place um uh directly after 
uh, the previous series. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, Joseph asks, do you have any intentions to revisit the world of Spider-Man life story? He really wants more of that world's Captain America and Iron Man. Uh, it would be cool. Um, the only problem is that uh, I don't want to. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> uh, and, and not out of a lack of love for it. Like, it was such a great project to work on. You know, Marvel let me basically do what I wanted with it and um, being able to craft a whole universe um, with, with the best editor in the business, Tom Brevoort. Um, it was, it was an absolute joy, but it was also the hardest project I've ever done. Yeah. Uh, I, I bet. To, to reconcile all that history uh, within uh, the format and to create a satisfying narrative overall uh, and individual issues um, was really, really tricky. And, um, and uh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Marvel's talked to me about doing more of them and I've, I've politely declined. Uh, and then part of it is also, I kind of want to see other people do it. Yeah. As well as, well as those nice follow-up questions, like, do you know if they're thinking about handing it to a different writer to kind of play in that world? Yeah, maybe for all I know, they may have already done it. Um, you know, I'm not privy to, um, all the conversations, like basically my interactions on that stop as soon as I say, uh, I'm not doing it. Yeah. Though I did say, you know, I'd be open to doing covers because I enjoy doing the covers on the, uh, the original series. But, um, you know, the, the main question that the editor and the creative teams that follow have to face is, do you set it in that same universe or do you create a new universe each time? Yeah. There are pros and cons, obviously. Um, but I, I think you'd probably tell a more satisfying story by creating a new universe each time. So you're not beholden to uh, the designs Mark did and the directions that I took mm -hmm. for the other Marvel characters. You know, um, you know, because for, for FF, Iron Man, and Cap, like I, I laid down some some definitive things in the Spider-Man story that have happened to those characters, and um, uh, I don't know how much fun it would be for another writer to come in and do a life story and, and have to touch on the stuff that I set up. Yeah, for sure. I get that. Um, but with life story too, uh, another follow-up question, cause I just thought of this, um, were you inspired in any way by John Burns generations? <laughs> strangely? No. Uh, okay. I was just curious though. Cause I was thinking about like that. Like I just realized that how strangely kind of similar they are in a way. No, they're, they're totally similar. And, uh, I didn't even, I didn't realize it until, uh, issue one already came out and people were like, Oh, this is like generations. And I had a, like a faint memory of it because my brother was collecting DC when I was collecting Marvel. Um, and, uh, and yeah, yeah. I feel a little bad that, uh, trampled, trampled on that idea a little bit. I, I, in a way, John Burns uh, version goes way, way further <laughs> in a lot of different areas, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like, yeah, because it's kind of like Silver Agey, all those kind of concepts kind of brought forth to the future, right? Yeah, and and like uh, I think I think it covers like almost a hundred years. Yeah, and and he he, I mean, all three all three ones are just different aspects of the same story, which are fascinating to see that play out. Yeah, whereas this I, I this was mostly an exercise in in seeing if I could still hit all the same beats of Spider-Man's history 
um, but updated to reflect the uh, the aging in real time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. One uh, interesting tidbit is the original name of the book was Marvel Age, um, which is so perfect. <laughs> yeah. No. It, it's that's. Life, life story is a great name. What's happening in the book? They're aging. It's like it's such yeah. a perfect title, and um, apparently Marvel didn't want to to go for it because they were using the Marvel Age brand elsewhere or had recently used it elsewhere. I'm just like, ah, damn it! Like, beat me to the punch. That that one hurt. I didn't even come up with it. Tom Brevoort came up with it because he's been uh, when I approached him with the idea, he was like, "This has been pitched to me a bunch of times," and he's given it a lot of thought. And he had the name Marvel Age in his head. I'm like, this is perfect. That's amazing. And then we found out that we couldn't use it. That's such a like. That's a, such a great name too for like it. Like a not like an imprint, but like a side series. And you yeah. could just like then put the subtitle of any character. Yeah, I mean, I think the the problem was they used that imprint for like a kids line mm. okay. at some point, and 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 so there was already a a connection there with the title, which is yeah. A, a little sad. Uh, and uh, Dina asks, is there any character uh, from the big two that you want to draw or write still? Um, like one you haven't haven't done yet? Yeah, not really. It's, it's a tricky question because um, I, I tend to not think ahead in that manner. Mm -hmm. Like I don't have like a checklist where I'm like, oh, I need to do this, I need to do that. Like, um, Usually what happens is if an editor approaches me with a project, I, I give it a lot of thought at that point just to see if I can come up with a good story, but I'm not really pre, pre-writing books that I'm not on. You yeah, know? No, I get that. Um, and there's also the added element of you don't want to, you don't want to say, Oh yeah, I'd love to write Daredevil when somebody else is writing it. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds a little bit like I want your job. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Like, like, you know, I, I, I have some friends, uh, comic writers who like, who actively tell me that they want to write Daredevil, but we're like, we're buddy enough that it's fine and it's funny. Um, but like, I don't know if I took a shot at like saying, you know, I want to, I want to write, you know, Captain Carrot and like Josh Williams is writing Captain Carrot. Like it's his dream book and it's his paycheck. And I'm putting that out there in the world. Like and an editor hears that and they're like, oh, maybe we want Chip on Captain Carrot. Like, fucking sucks man <laughs> yeah and i guess you don't want the, the other opposite effect to happen where you're like i, I want to write such and such character and they're like oh yeah why don't you and, he, and you're like oh wait i have to turn this down because i'm booked right now yeah and now, yeah. now you kind of just burn that area yeah yeah for sure yeah i've, I've never i've never quite gotten uh, to that problem i have had the situation where I, i've been approached to write a book or a character and that I've been like a lifelong fan of. And then I'm just like, this is amazing. What a great opportunity. And then I, you know, spend a week thinking about it. And I'm like, I have no stories to tell with this character. Yeah. And I was like, shit. And like, and then you have to basically like bow out, which is, that's, that's the hardest email. It's always confusing to an editor too. Cause they're just like, well, it's a fucking job. Why are you turning down a job? I'm like, I, if I can't do a good job at it, like you don't want to do it then. And it's a character I love. Like, yeah, there's not a lot of point to this. Yeah, and and as we, I think we talked about earlier, it's like you really you, there are books you read that you're like, oh, this person just kind of did it for the check at that point. Yeah, because sometimes like, those can be good, but yeah, there's a lot of times they're just missing a little bit of that kind of heart when it when it comes to writing something you're super passionate about. Yeah. Um, on Twitter, Doom Richards <laughs> asks, um, 
How would you say Doom's relationship with the Fantastic Four has changed from two and one to X-Men Fantastic Four? Um, well, in between is Dan Slott, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, so, uh, you know, Dan did the, the reset on Doom. I mean, technically Bendis did it at the end of his run, but, uh, you know, Dan leaned into kind of a more classic Doom, which to be fair, like we were talking earlier, is you kind of need Doom as a villain. Like mm-hmm. you, I don't think you can keep him as a hero forever. Yeah. Um, it adds an interesting layer to him, but, um, but yeah, so that's basically what's changed. And so I'm writing him to reflect uh, Dan's version. But also, you know, I mean, I tend to write Doom as a bit snarkier, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there are a few lines in the X-Men FF series that I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with, like, where he just kind of, like, cuts into Reed a bit. <laughs> um, I, I, my favorite, I, I read this one, uh, I read the whole, like, monologue to my dad when I first read it. It's, um, I want to say it's in the last issue that came out. I think it was issue three, okay, maybe yeah. two, um, where he's talking, <clears throat> talking to one of the X-Men about power. And about how he had to earn his while yeah. you were just born with, but the, but he went to that full like villain monologue, and at the same time, like he's right though, <laughs> like he's hundred yeah. percent right. Yeah, that that's what makes it interesting. Like I'm, I love the uh, the new X Men status quo. Uh, yeah, Hick, what Hickman so and the other writers have done, it's just been fascinating, and it's it's a great experiment, and um, it it adds a level of nuance to the characters, right? Mm-hmm. And um. And yeah, so so the, I find the trick with dealing with that situation is you can look at it from a real world point of view or you can look at it from a Marvel Universe point of view. Um, and you kind of want to, you want to, you can't go full real world with it because if you went full real world, it's like, this is crazy. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> these guys are monsters and yeah. we need to stop them. Um, but if you lean into Marvel Universe of it, more so um like no they've 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 been done wrong and this makes a lot of sense um but you 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 want to like sprinkle the real world in there yeah um which is what what doom is doing kind of like giving a, a slight dose of reality there that you know these are beings of power um uh and yeah they're not better than other humans as a result of that but they're acting in their their um treating the situation like they are like the uh the the, the the most fun wrinkle is the hickman introduced i think is the fact that they're all treated as ambassadors that's, yeah they can't be tried like it's a, a bonkers concept like the idea that like you know wolverine because he has claws coming out of his body it means he can do whatever he wants like <laughs> like that's 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 insanity that's but not- it works it works within the marvel universe like it works fully there. Yeah. So, so Doom is just kind of pointing out, like, um, no, I had to like build myself. I had to build myself up, and the way I've treated Doom in the past, like I got I got to write um, a Marvel two in one annual, which went into a bit of his childhood stuff. Um, is yeah, he's got that chip on the shoulder, like he's he's the king basically of Latveria, mm-hmm. but he's not descended from royalty. Yeah, he made like, it. There's no, there's no lineage. He created that. You know, um, he, is, he is about like earned power versus uh, in, inherited power, which is, you know, an interesting talking point, you know, these days. Yeah, um, for sure. When, when, you, when you deal with, you know, kind of inequality of income and, uh, and, and wealth, uh, you know, across 
you know, North America. Um, you know, doom, doom's, doom is weirdly a voice saying like, um, you know, I start, he's, he's Drake saying I started from the bottom. Yeah, no, it's true. It's weird. It's weirdly how like the most American dream, per- like actual American dream person in the, in the Marvel universe is doom. Yeah. One of the worst yeah. villains. Yeah. Yeah. But the thing is he got the power and then what he did with it is yeah. what makes him the villain, right? What yeah, he did with sure. it is like, um, try to take over the world, try to kill people, like rule with an iron fist. Um, you know, that's, that's the, the, the extra level that of course he doesn't talk about when he's talking to the X-Men. Yeah. And the speaking about X-Men status quo, I think my favorite issues of the Hickman run so far still is that one whole, I think it's like issue four, the whole issue where they're yeah. having that political talk at mm-hmm. the table and it's just Magneto going to town on every politician in that room about how yeah. like we're just doing what you're doing, but you don't like it because we're mutants. It's such a smart issue. It's my yes. favorite issue. It's my favorite issue too. And I was discussing this with a comic writer the other day and the comic writer was like, he was like, I like it all, but like, you know, it just doesn't feel very superhero-ish. And I'm like, no, that's the point. Like mm-hmm. you've read superhero books all your life and you know the beats of them. But with this, you don't know the beats. And you can pull out an issue like that where it's just like, it's a dinner conversation. And that, it's fascinating and it's tense in a way that like um, a superhero fist fight knocking down buildings isn't tense, right? Yeah, for sure. And I, like that's why... Um with you and with Hickman and with King and a bunch of other writers right now, all of you guys are pulling out these like one-off issues at least, but even like entire runs where the whole idea of what a, a comic superhero comic book is, is just kind of flipped and mm-hmm. you go in not knowing what's about to happen. And that's, that's most fun for me, honestly, is like not ex- like expecting the beats, but then the beats being just completely out of order. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, you know, talking earlier about, you know, character deaths and how it's not surprising anymore. Like the way to surprise a reader is to give them something completely new. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, like sometimes I'll write a comic and be like, I'll look at it afterwards. And I'm like, oh, this feels just like a Marvel comic. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, for sure. Like some, sometimes you end up in the trap where you can write a thing and it feels almost like autopilot. And then you look at it and you're just like, ah, oh, God, I could have like, like, what can I add to this? What, how can I change this in such a way where it's, um, where it stands out, where I can say, this is the best thing that's out this month. Like, yeah. That's, that's a challenge. For me, reading your Daredevil run, it's every, every single time Matt's in the church. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, we all know how Catholic Matt Murdock is in a lot of ways. But, like, every time he's in the church, every discussion he has with a priest as a kid and as an adult in that church, in that, in that first volume, um, is so poetic in a lot of ways but also it's not you're in the middle of a murder mystery kind of yeah and you take these beats the wax philosophically about just life and what it means to be human and to live with your sins and what is even a sin in a lot of ways like yeah and he's the character you get to do that with like that's why um it's the one title that i i actively pursued mm -hmm. uh, at marvel because um you can you can more easily kind of go off and, and do a different type of uh, superhero story. Yeah, I don't think there's a normal Daredevil book. Every Daredevil book is different. Every Daredevil run is different from the from the last. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a testament to um, you know Frank Miller 
mm-hmm. um, for kind of setting that tone by by basically breaking uh, mainstream comics and kind of building them back up again mm-hmm. uh, with his run, especially Born Again with uh, Matt Kelly. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think creators that have come on that book since are always trying to do something different as a result. Um, because you can with Daredevil in a way you can't with Spider-Man. Like Spider-Man represents the company. Spider-Man, there's like, there's rules on how you deal with that character. And um, if you want to change a thing, like it, there are a lot of discussions with people um, who make more money than you. Yeah. Uh, with, with Daredevil, it's like, you can kind of do what you want with him. He's not an X-Men. He's not an Avenger. He's not Fantastic Four. Like he's his own thing. He's basically the most human of the characters. Um, so if you want to go off and do a more kind of uh, adult tale, you can. Yeah, I think that's one of the best things about all the Daredevil runs too, especially since, like from Frank Miller onward, is like they're consistently the best run of that character in a weird way. Like everybody will have their favorites, but like yeah. it's hard to argue that like Brubaker's run isn't the best run, and Bendis's run isn't the best run, and that um, Mark Wade's two runs with Sammy aren't the best runs. But then you get with your run, and you get with um. Uh, and Charles Soule's run, like they're also great runs, and they're like becoming the best runs in the, in their time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I think creators really rise to the challenge when it comes to Daredevil. And and it's it's fun to to watch the artists that meet them at their challenges too, because it always feels like the perfect pairing. Yeah, and and so much of um, the success of Daredevil is tied into. Um, the continuity of artists, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you can't think of Bendis's run without Maliv mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or Brubaker and Lark or or Wade and Sammy, uh, Nascenti and John Romita Jr. Like, um, it, it really, really highlights like how important it is to have a consistent team mm-hmm. on a book. Like, it, it's hard when you know all of those runs had fill-in artists, um, and 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 we're no exception. Like Marco is the main artist. We've had some great fill-ins and uh secondary artist but uh the book would be completely different without marco there yeah for sure um yeah it's it's crazy to think um how some people kind of forget how hard it is to be a consistent team on a monthly book Mm -hmm. (laughs) because like there's a there's a lot of work that goes into those books especially on on the art side there's an insane amount of work yeah marco sent me a page this week from was it issue 23 i think it's just gorgeous and like the backgrounds are immaculate and awesome and stylish and and i even i i wrote him i'm just like i'm like i want to i want to know how you do this Mm -hmm. like i know some of the elements like i you know there's computer programs for 3d rendering and stuff but um but you know he's like hey next time you're in like venice (laughs) you know come by my studio and i'll show you how i do it but it it seems so laborious and intense Mm -hmm. Um, I can't imagine him having a life, even just doing, you know, one issue over like five, six weeks. And I love seeing like when, whenever an artist like that does like a live version of them drawing a page or something. And like, it, it just looks effortless in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, whenever artists do like live drawings, um, yeah. they're always showing the the best parts. Mm-hmm. They're not showing like the two hours of researching Google images on, you know, what manhole covers look like or <laughs> fire hydrants. That, that's one of my favorite uh, reasons to follow Mitch on uh, on Twitter is because he will just post some of the most random th- things he has to do to get the art that he wants. 
Yeah. And then he also posts like mistakes that he made and stuff. And it's like, okay, Mitch is like, I'm not perfect. And this is the process. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We all go through it. Like I'm, I'm working on a bunch of projects right now where I'm just like, God, the, uh, the, uh, the photos I've been taking of myself are just so unflattering, <laughs> but you know, you, you, you need to do what you got to do to get the, uh, get the art done. That's, that's one thing I would, I would love one day is just like a group of artists. Like here's a picture of all of our references that we took, <laughs> like a, a book of just reference photos. Yeah. And I mean, uh, at one point years ago, I just, I posted a photo, which was all of my kind of like my photo booth photos, uh, from my Mac. Uh, just me doing stupid, stupid stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, just thousands of photos. It's just insane. Um, it, it's so much easier being an artist now. Like when I first started out, um, I assisted an illustrator in kind of a big shared studio. There's a lot of classic illustrators, like romance style guys, um, and their reference was like filing cabinets full of photos that they've clipped out from magazines and newspapers mm. or taken themselves. Like you go through the files and be like, okay, I need the street scenes. You find the folder that has street scenes. And it, it would just be full of stuff they've collected for years. Like <clears throat> whenever an illustrator retired, you know, they would bequeath that to a, another illustrator. Like it was like a passing of a, a baton or something. Like it was such a big deal to, get the reference material from an older illustrator and now it's like you can just google it it's great <laughs> uh last question that i have uh, i don't even and i'm not even sure if you can answer this one but uh andrew right. William just asked uh since the release date's all messed up with the pandemic do you have any idea when volume three of daredevil is going to come out um i think yesterday marvel actually released that information okay cool so um i don't know it off the top of my head like it's funny when people ask me about like uh release dates for stuff i'm just like like I'm done with that issue. <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote that like seven months ago. I have no, I have no idea if I was actively buying them, then I, I'd know. But, um, but you know, sometimes I mark my calendar when something's coming out so I can remind myself to promote it that week. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I know Marvel um, just released a list of um, dates for the next or for June anyways. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think like end of May is when they're coming back, and I think Daredevil's maybe June sixth. I want to okay. say tenth, June tenth. Sounds good. Uh, it, it's always fun to hear like writers talk about how far ahead in their schedule they are, but they're still kind of like trying to hit deadlines because they're supposed to be far ahead in their schedule. Yeah, it's all it's all the artists, you know. Like, yeah, we got to get them got to get them going on pages, or else that final ultimate deadline won't be met. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that uh, you want to talk about? Uh, anything you want to promote or anything like that? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, um, if people want to donate to the CLLDF, um, that's the kind of the Canadian chapter of the um, Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. That's like Comic Legends Legal Defense Fund. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll post the link to that in the notes for this episode and on Twitter when I post it, for sure. Okay, yeah, awesome. Yeah, they're, um, they're the ones that you can donate to to help out the Canadian shops because um, the recent big kind of charity push for the BINC um, doesn't cover Canada. And we need all shops to survive, if possible. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. Uh, Chip, thank you so much for like doing this again, and uh, this was a great conversation. I had so much fun. Yeah, same here. Yeah, my pleasure, Jesse.
Hey guys, this is Jesse coming back right in to uh, promote the podcast social media links, talk about our Patreon, and give credit for the rest of the podcast. Um, you can follow us on Comic Books Matter on Twitter at Comics Matter Pod, C O M I C S M A T T E R P O D. You can uh, email us any questions, stories, or inquiries about interviews at comicbooksmatter at gmail.com. You can also do the same on our Twitter, but I also have an email now and I wanted to uh, showcase that. You can donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash comicbooksmatter. Uh, don't feel like you need to donate. Uh, only if you're financially able to and really like the show and you want to see it grow. Um, the logo for the show is done by my friend Steven. He's great. Uh, nothing to promote still. Great guy still. Theme song is Join the Restaurant by David. On I found it on freemusicarchive.com. Thanks for listening, guys, and I hope you have a great rest of your week.